This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best in motor racing. Uh, Welcome back, everybody, to another Motorsport Magazine podcast, the penultimate one before the end of 2010. And uh, we welcome you today to a very chilly UK. In fact, uh, there's more snow in Northumberland than there is in Norway. Can you believe that? It is particularly chilly here. But wherever you are uh, today, a warm welcome. And uh, with us for this podcast, we are absolutely over the moon, as they say in football, that Pat Simmons has taken the uh, time and trouble to join us here today. A man, of course, who's very experienced at podcasts from his days on the Renault Formula One casting of the pods. And uh, just so you know, we ain't going there today, okay? And if you don't know what that means, you shouldn't be listening. But we're not going there. There's lots of other stuff to talk about with Pat. And before we start, um, let me tell you about a subscription to Motorsport magazine. I normally tell you about this at the end, but I'm going to tell you at the beginning today because it's important. You can save 23% on the cover price by taking out a subscription to Motorsport magazine, and you will get a free Hammond Meets Moss DVD. If you don't know what Hammond Meets Moss is, it's a very, very good television program where Hammond of Top Gear talks to Sterling Moss about having a very serious accident. And it's a very revealing, interesting program. Anyway, you get this free of charge if you subscribe to Motorsport magazine. It's just £46 for one year and £84 for two. Well worth it. The editor is nodding and smiling. Right. Pat, welcome. Got that out of the way. (laughs) Yes, and it's nice to be here. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Um, Can I just uh, start by saying to you that we've had an amazing number of questions from our readers and and listeners. So uh, you are anything but a forgotten man. And interestingly, um, you've been doing quite a lot of journalism, haven't you? What's that been like? Because in the past, it was always, oh, no, not another journalist. (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're, they're really great people, journalists. I, <laughs> I never realised how difficult it was. And I've actually, I've always enjoyed writing. And, uh, you know, my time at Renault, I used to write a, a lot of stuff anyway. And uh, I, ho- I do enjoy it. Um, but I do regard it really as a, a little bit of a hobby. Uh, so I don't think the professionals like Nigel need worry about me too much. <laughs> well, I suppose we could ask Nigel that, couldn't we? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, no, I've been very impressed by everything I've read that you've done. I'm okay. impressed so, I mean, by it, but I can't understand if it's a, it. Uh, 
Well, I mean... Well, uh, you mean the technology of Formula One? Well, I can't understand things like logarithms. Well, fundamentally, there's Giorgio Piola, who, who understands, who uh-huh. sort of vaguely understands the technology of Formula uh-huh. One. Otherwise, everybody else in the press room is sort of just nods and smiles. Okay, no, I do read <laughs> Pat Simmons' articles, but they're a little bit above my level, I think. Anyway, it's fascinating also. Well, that, that just shows that I'm failing, because I really am trying to get the oh. technology... <laughs> You know, in, into a level where everyone, I hope, can understand it. And certainly not people who are just um, yeah. mathematically inclined or have engineering degrees. You know, my, my aim is to try and uh, bring it out to the mainstream because I think there's so many interesting things that the, the casual observer misses. Yeah. And Formula One's so secretive. It, it does nothing to promote itself in that respect. So I'm really trying to, to bring it to uh, another level. But it, I've obviously got to try a bit harder, haven't I? <laughs> well, Rob, you'll be very pleased. In the next issue, um, Pat's written an article for us about Formula One innovation, past and present and future. And it's, it's, uh, even I understood it. So, um, you know, you won't have a problem with that one. So. I'm, I, I get a lot of it. There's just perhaps the, the really t- tough bits I don't quite get. Anyway, anyway, who cares about me? Um, talking of technology, uh, Pat... Kurz is coming back uh, next season in Formula One. And I wondered what your thoughts about Kurz are because of the, you know, yes, it's great, but it's got weight. Where do we put it? How do we work it? Well, firstly, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of Kurz. I, I do think that it's, uh, it's good to see Formula One trying to get on the vanguard of technology uh, and not be left behind. So I am a bit of a fan. I think it's very unfortunate the way it came in in, in 2009. And it, it's, it's ironic, really, that over the years we've tried so often to have equivalence formulas in mm. Formula One. You know, we've had it with turbocharged engines, normally aspirated engines. We had it when we gave a concession to Toro Rosso to run their V10s while everyone else was running a V8. Yeah. And never have we managed to get true equivalency. Then along comes Kurz which we knew very little about. We had to make some decisions quite early on. And unfortunately, we made it really performance neutral. And I think that's a great shame uh, because I think it should have been more powerful than it is. And I, I say that with retrospect, you know, which is much easier. And I, I was involved in those early days in deciding what some of the numbers should be. So I think it's a shame the way it is. And with the sort of voluntary ban, if you like, in, in 2010, it would have been nice if it came back in 2011 with a little bit more oomph in it. Mm. Now, of course, the, the weight limit's gone up, so that makes it a little bit easier to use than it was in, in mm-hmm. 2009. But still, I, I, I think that, you know, for very minimal cost, they could have upped the energy or upped the power and made it uh, a sort of real must-have to, to go racing with. Was it was actually as difficult and as dangerous as everyone said? Because I think when it first came out, there were a few reports of, you know, you got the stickers on the car saying Kurz is on and all that kind of stuff. I think it was less dangerous, but a damn sight more difficult. <laughs> it was certainly more difficult than we expected. Um, danger, you know, you have to respect these things, but uh, and without getting too technical, a kilogram of fuel has 42 megajoules of energy in it. Now, that hurts. You know, you set far too a kilogram of, of fuel. That's a hell of a lot more dangerous than a battery. But over the years, we've learned to ha- how to handle fuel. You know, don't smoke when you're leaning against a fuel drum. It, it's relatively easy. Um, but I think with, with, with high-voltage, high-current electricity, probably we had a lot to learn, particularly as most of the people in Formula One are mechanical engineers, not electrical engineers. So... Mm. 
There was a lot to learn, but I have to say that one of the things that I think has been very, very impressive about the KERS projects throughout the Formula One community is the way they've handled safety and some of the innovations that have come in to enhance the safety. And again, it's not the sort of thing the general public hear about, but, but the automotive industry, I hope, you know, are learning from what we did. Um, it was sold to the public as a performance uh, enhancer in terms of being able to overtake. That's obviously not, as you said, not the way it worked out. Um, and for next year, again, it's not looking like it's going to be because uh, the, the power hasn't been upped. Can, can you explain why that is and what there's teams with interests that didn't want it to be? Well, it was an incredibly expensive project. Um, you know, all the teams spent many millions of euros um, lots of figures bandied around but I, I know that at Renault we were I think we were up to about 7 million euros by the time we'd finished a year's racing with it um, and that's a, that's a hell of a lot of money and I think that led to a certain amount of protectionism people didn't want to change too mm -hmm. much because it was just going to cost more money now of course when we get our new engine if we get our new engine in Formula 1 2013 whenever it may be then I think there'll be a, a real rethink because then we will combine downsizing of the engine with a much more powerful curve system, electrical system, energy recovery in general, not just kinetic energy and uh, I think then we'll see a, a much better device. I'd have liked to have seen it next year, perhaps in a smaller form, you know, just a, a little increase but uh, it's not to be. Mm. Pat, when you were saying that in 2009 it, 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 it wasn't producing as much power as with hindsight you would like to have seen, how much would you like to have seen? Well, it, it, the, the system 60 kilowatts, which is 75 horsepower in uh, English numbers, um, you know, even putting it up to 100 mm. would, have, would have just been enough to tip the balance, I, I think. Um, and that's probably a, a sort of number that even today you could go for without having to totally redesign the, the motors and, and things. You'd really just upsize them a little bit. Right, right. Can you explain to us, Pat, the, 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 the bit about whether it's battery-powered or not? Because I see that Williams have decided to go with battery power. What's involved in that decision? Well, it's a difficult decision, you know, e even now. Uh, when we started the project, we evaluated all sorts of technologies, you know, the, the battery and the mm. electric motor generator, the electric flywheel and pure mechanical flywheel. I have to say that, as an engineer, everything pointed to the mechanical flywheel as being the really attractive one. But there, were, there was a high risk involved. Now, um, people like John Hilton at Flybrid have actually solved those problems, and I, I think that's actually a very attractive package now to, to take into anything, be it Formula One, be it other forms of racing, or, or be it uh, road vehicles. Um, but I guess that the, the simplest one, and I, I use that word a little bit advisedly because they're, they're certainly none of them are simple, but the, the, the simplest one is probably the motor generator charging batteries and then those batteries powering the motor. And simplicity is worth having, isn't it, in a, in a sport like Formula One where you have so much complexity? Yes. Uh, I would say that when I, when I say simplicity, I mean in terms of known technology. I think in, oh, right. in terms of complexity, 
They're every bit as complex, if not more so, than the mechanical systems. You can see why I'm a journalist, can't you? <laughs> anyway. Well, I, I, the, the thing about Kurz, I, I remember when it, when it arrived in Formula One, I, I remember a couple of road car journalists saying, oh, God, it's, that's from the arc. It's already, it's already, it's already, you know, long outdated. Is, is I mean, well, what, what do you say about that? I, I think that that's a really interesting observation because it, I, I think that it uh, it shows the way Formula One can do things differently. Now, people are always looking at Formula One in terms of technology, and I'm sure a lot of people would like to say, "What can I unbolt from the, your Formula One car and bolt onto my road car?" And the answer is nothing. What what, what we do is we generate ideas, we generate concepts, um, things like that. Now, if you take Kurz, when, when Kurz came along, yes, it was, of course it was known in, in road cars as you know, the hybrid technology. And I think a lot of people thought of it as completely a sort of just a green issue, um, not something that had anything to do with high-performance motoring, not anything that had anything to do with everyday motoring. It was just that minority, if you like, who who uh, really beat the, the green drum. And I have to say, you know, I was in that way of thinking. And as I got to work with the, the hybrid systems, I realised that actually they're, they're really very good because the good old internal combustion engine that we all know and love is very, very good at producing power for a very small package, very light package, very small package, lots of power. But it does it by revving very high. That leaves it with a deficiency of torque at, at low speed, and therefore we have to have gearboxes to, to cover that and keep the thing moving at high speed. Well, of course, the electric motor has lots of torque at low speed, so if you put the two together, you actually get a really good high-performance package. And, of course, the supercar guys are seeing this now, and they're not just doing it for publicity, mm. and I, I think that the future supercar will be a hybrid. And I hope that Formula One has enhance the reputation of hybrids if nothing else yeah, that, that is interesting yeah. I think I'm sorry Ed, I, so I, I think also the, the guys the road car journalists um, you know what they perhaps didn't know is just how fast Formula 1 develops everything because you know I think the, you know, the small number of teams that did take on cars and use it for the whole season they found out more about the system than the road car industry would have in you know double the amount of years or you know twice as long I think yeah that's absolutely true and and when you look at uh, the the electric motors that are on those systems now bear in mind they're, they're 60 kilowatts they're 75 horsepower they weigh about seven kilograms now mm-hmm. just to put that into context you know, 75 horsepower is the sort of power of a a, a small road car mm-hmm. and you've got this seven kilogram motor you know that took some developing yeah. now of course it's way too expensive at the moment for that technology to go into road cars but when there are a lot of electric road cars then it will start feeding from that technology that was developed in in formula one i think we have to change the subject guys only because there's so much to talk about and we have so little time um can i mention these four words to you pat the overtaking working group Um, you may (laughs) (laughs) um being a simple person i thought the whole idea was to uh, make overtaking easier and more exciting in formula one and then along came the double diffuser and yeah um it's a vexed subject isn't it uh, i think in 2009 when we um implemented the work that we'd done in the overtaking working group which was myself rory Byrne from ferrari and paddy lowe from mclaren mm. 
I was very hopeful that we were going to make a difference. The double diffuser, I think, really, um, really did turn things over a little bit. Uh, and everyone sort of rushed off and they were developing their double diffusers. And I think there was a lot of, you know, not terribly good aerodynamics around last year. But interestingly, this year, as people have sort of refined things, although, of course, there's been a lot of work done on the F-ducts and the, the blown diffusers and things, it's interesting that the overtaking statistics this year are significantly improved yeah. over on anything that we've had for the last sort of yeah. 10 years. So I, I think maybe that work wasn't wasted. I think it, it there was just a little distraction along the way. And... I don't know what other people think. I think the amount of overtaking is not too bad at the moment. Well, it's better. It, it's better, you know. But we, I always say that overtaking should be like a goal in football. It shouldn't be like a basket in basketball. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to make it too easy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, moving on to, to next year with the um, movable rear wing, it'll need to be used in a clever manner and... and there are some clever thoughts about it, but it needs to be used in a clever manner to, to not make overtaking too easy, I think. Just actually, Pat, just, it's just a, a thought that struck me. Did, was the, uh, when you were working, when the overtaking working group was um, consulting about this, that and the other, did you at any point have any um, scope to make, to sort of make recommendations about the actual tracks? No, we, we, we didn't, um, and it was unfortunate. Yeah, it because is, yeah. When, uh, when they said, yeah, will you join this overtaking working group, I said, yeah, great, you know, lots of nice things we can do there. But it was made very apparent in our initial brief from the FIA that we were to do nothing other than to look at aerodynamics. And I think that's a shame because uh, I think there are other Absolutely. things that could be done. Uh, in fact, I'd say there are other things that are probably more important mm. Than, mm. than the aerodynamics. And you can sort of justify saying that by just looking at the statistics of different tracks mm. you know we know that some tracks yeah. are easier to overtake Absolutely. on than others yeah. so i wish there had been more we could do because it was i mean i thought the last race apart from being dreary as hell um we, we, and you know if anywhere a race should never have been dreary it should have been a world championship decider shouldn't mm. it with four mm. four guys mm. involved but i i just thought uh, so much of that enough this is simply farcical you know fernando and and mark stuck behind um, Petrov mm. and Lewis you know behind, yeah. behind Kubica and, and well know, everybody except Vettel yeah, there are really. no harder races in the business than, than those yeah. three guys and, they, and they, they weren't able to make no progress you know the race yeah. could be going on now they'd still be where they were and you sort of think that can't be right I know that I know you know Tilka works under great safety constraints and everything else but it's almost it, it has gone I think it's, got, it's gone over centre yeah, I, I agree. I think there's there's plenty that can be done with the circuits that uh, could improve it. Um, it. It's not easy, but I don't think that it necessarily encroaches on the safety. In fact, I, I absolutely don't think it encroaches on the safety no, aspect. Shouldn't. No. No. Um, Pat, a lot of people, a lot of our readers, um, often hark back to the past and say, you know, ban wings, but you can't uninvent um, the last. 30 years can you is is there any way of um clawing back um or clawing like getting rid of more downforce we lost 50 percent with the 2009 regulations but is there more that can be done well we we didn't lose 50 percent that, that's uh, that's um, a misconception what what we did in the overtaking working group was we we 
worked on a model that had 50% of the downforce of the, the current car. But you have to bear in mind that we have very, very limited wind tunnel time. Now, the teams are, are 24-7 in the wind tunnel or using their CFD. So we knew damn well that they were going to get way beyond where we'd been with our simple experiments. So uh, that's why we set 50%. We didn't for mm. one minute think that people would stay there. And I think, in fact, when we before the double diffuser came along, it was probably about 15% down on the... 2008 cars um, can we do more yes we can uh, you, you can always limit downforce but equally I think you know a Formula 1 car has to be the fastest car around any given circuit you know that, that's part of the, mm. the mystique the DNA of sure. Formula 1 so I think that's a very important thing and if you start just emasculating it totally then you'll have sports cars you'll have other form, single-seater formulas going faster than Formula 1 and I don't think that would be something that people would, would like either. I think what we have to do is we have to acknowledge that, that aerodynamics is a very important part of motorsport. It's a fact um, and we have to learn a little bit more about managing the, the aerodynamics to improve the racing but uh, we can't uh, just get rid of it. Do you think there's a way of writing rules for Formula 1 that allow more expression in design and more innovation uh, without escalating costs out of the stratosphere because I guess that's, the, that's the, always the fear and the thing that the FIA always uh, that's why they ban everything that comes in Yeah, I absolutely do uh, and it's, uh, it's called budget capping and uh, it's where things should be now, I believe um, <coughs> although Renault uh, and, and certainly elements of Renault were in fact, opposed to budget capping, it was my job to actually look for ways of reducing costs. And I was completely convinced that budget capping was the correct thing to do, and in fact, the only way that was going to be mm. successful. Now, for political reasons, FOTA sort of turned budget capping into what they called resource restriction, but it had a very similar effect. Um, I think it's still a little bit weak. Uh, I believe that a budget cap should be just that. It should cover everything um, and not sort of exclude marketing and what have you because that just leads to suspicion, if nothing else. Mm. Mm. But, but I do think the budget capping is, is a great way of controlling the racing because then I'd like to see the prescriptive regulation reduced and allow people the freedom to, to think. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, variables in a formula are, are what creates inequality, if you like, and actually creates racing in the sense if you've got a tyre wall, for example, you go from track to track and it's, it can be a different story every weekend. Do you, do you approve of variables? Do you improve of, uh, of a tyre wall, for example? Do you think that, that, would, that would improve things? I, I certainly approve of having more variables and less prescriptive regulation. Um, I think that... Um, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it when we had the tyre war. As an engineer, I loved it. You know, it was it was great, great learning process. It was great going racing. Um, did it improve the show? I'm not sure it did, uh, and that's really quite important because, you know, we we want budget capping, we want less regulation. But let's not forget the most important thing is to put on a good show. Is we're not 
We're not going racing for the benefit of engineers. We're going racing for the benefit of people who are watching the sport, yeah, particularly yeah. on television. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure everybody listening yeah. will be pleased to hear that yeah, well, statement, no, won't no, they? No, absolutely. Yeah. Pat, just going back to this um, uh, thing about the, qu- the qu- whole question of downforce, when, when you, um, in your overtaking working group meetings, you must have talked endlessly about, you know, the possibility of... of getting the downforce from you know from the tunnels rather than this complete dependence on, on on wings and external bits and pieces is that is that something you think we might see in the future so that the cars theoretically then can follow each other more closely through um, the, through the turns well i'm not allowed to get too technical am i but <laughs> um, if i could generalize i i would say that one of the things we found from that work was that any downforce that came off the wings was good downforce in right. terms of overtaking. And downforce that came off the body was bad downforce mm-hmm. in terms of overtaking. And, you know, I, I think this idea that ground effect cars had, it was easier to overtake with ground effect cars, I, I think is one of these wonderful sort of pit lane myths, you know, like this thing of reduce aerodynamics and increase grip will give better overtaking. I mean, that, you know, they, they, that that's a demonstrably rubbish Mm -hmm. and um i I think that uh you know we we didn't run full tunnels on the cars but we did find that every time we did something that produced downforce from the body it produced a wake that the other car was found very difficult to run in and that that's why i was so opposed to the double diffuser because i felt you know that was doing everything against what we had established in the overtaking working group were you not aghast when the FI said, yeah, that's all right. I mean, we all I, suspect I, there were reasons why that happened that may not have... I, I was amazed because, overt. you know, all rulemaking, all lawmaking does come down to semantics at some stage. But when you pour water in something and it falls through it and you say, well, that's not a hole, I don't know, I find that a little bit difficult. <laughs> Um, Can I mention CFD? Uh, What's your view on CFD? Do do you think it's a viable innovation? I mean, I know you're writing about innovation in next month's motorsports, and CFD hasn't, I mean... Yeah, in terms of designing a car from scratch without using a wind tunnel, do do you think there's a future in that? Well, yes, there's a future in it. I I just think the future is not now. Um, you have to remember that wind tunnel work and CFD are just different forms of modelling. One's physical modelling and the other's mathematical modelling. And therefore, each will have its drawbacks because they are models, they're not reality. And people sometimes forget that. They, people who get into modelling of any sort, particularly mathematical modelling, they do forget the, the, the shortfalls of it. Now, wind tunnel modelling is very good in that it deals with turbulent flow quite well, providing, um, again, I don't want to get technical, but providing you're above a certain, let's call it a speed. It's called a Reynolds number for anyone who's listening who is technical. <laughs> but providing you're above that Reynolds number, then you, you get very good similarity with your results. Your deficiencies then come down to the accuracy of your modelling. And if anyone could see the model of a Formula One car, they, they would be amazed. I mean, I, I always say that a, a Formula One wind tunnel model is probably the second most expensive racing car. Hey, everyone. 
I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the world, they are so sophisticated. Mm. But still, when you get down to things like the flow through the brake discs and stuff like that, they're not perfect. So you have some deficiencies there. CFD, on the other hand, is really, really good for helping you understand the aerodynamics because you can look at the flow, you can look at the pressures. Unfortunately, it's not so good with turbulent flow. And interestingly, it's developing rapidly in that area as a result of work going on in wind wind farms. Because Mm. in wind farms, they're very interested in the turbulent flow coming off one windmill and affecting another. Mm. So there's a lot of good work going on there, and CFD is, is improving rapidly because of it as well as work being done in Formula One, which is pushing CFD a lot. So the answer is that the two coexisting work very well, and of course that's how most teams are using them. Hmm. Should we read anything or not into the performance of the Virgin, which is allegedly the first ever completely CFD car or not? Well, it's not the first ever completely CFD car because, of course, Nick Worth's been doing it with the the Honda sports cars in America for a while, um, which have been quite successful. Um, Perhaps not in quite such an intense series as Formula One. I think that I don't think we should judge things yet. Uh, I think with I was going to say with the new teams, but certainly with Lotus and Virgin, I think the real test will come next year. You know, they they both had enormous hurdles to jump this year Lotus starting their car very very late mm-hmm. Virgin with a, a, a I mean just a stunningly low budget um, mm-hmm. and I think they've both done actually rather well with the restrictions that have been placed on them their real test will come this coming season and then let's make some judgments then mm-hmm. can we talk about Fernando Alonso for a minute I'm sorry if I'm uh, no, I, don't, I don't mean to hog it but I, I just want to there's so much to talk to a guy like Pat Simmons about I mean I were you hurt by what Alonso said, you know, vis-a-vis, it's great to be back in a, in a good team, it's great to be winning again after the last two years, and et cetera, et cetera. How did you find that? Well, I think, you know, it's a, it's a fact that in, in 2008, 2009, Fernando didn't have a, a winning car at, at Renault. Sure. You know, you can't dispute that. No. I, I was much more hurt by his comments in 2006, I think it was, in Japan, when he said the team wasn't behind him. And I thought, well, you know, what yeah. the hell are we all working yeah. 60, 70 hours a week for? Yeah. Yeah. And that was much more hurtful than any, did anything he, did he, he said. Did you ever get there. to the bottom of that? Because when, it, but I, it, I, I thought of that again when Weber said it in, um, in Brazil. Hmm. You remember? Mm. Absolutely. Why the hell have you said that? The team's not behind me, but I'm in the lead of the world championship. 
I mean, did you ever? You must have talked to him about it. I mean, what, yeah. What, what, what prompted I, it? I mean, there were a few occasions when Fernando said things like that, and, and if he did speak to him afterwards, he'd always say, "Well, that's not quite what I meant." And you know, one has to allow that there is perhaps something lost in translation when the guy's uh, speaking in uh, um, another language. Um, you just have to be a bit thick-skinned, you know. I, I've never worked in, in Formula 1 to make a driver a world champion. I, I've always worked to, to win, and I don't really care about anything else. Um, so, you know, if we're winning, I'm happy. If we're not, I'm not. How would you say that he, uh, uh, he differs from Schumacher? Because, amazingly, I mean, you've worked so closely with both these men. Are they very different or very similar? No, they're, they're, they're quite different. Um, I mean, it's quite interesting. The, the sort of three great champions that I, I worked with as an engineer were, were Senna, Schumacher, mm. uh, and then Alonso. And the interesting thing is that they're sort of a decade apart each. So mm. apart from the fact that it makes me very old, it's also <laughs> quite interesting. And the interesting thing is that the requirements of the driver change so rapidly. It's such a rapidly moving sport that um, it makes it difficult to really compare these guys technically. You know, we, if you go back as far as Ayrton, if you wanted to know what the revs were on the straight or what the water temperature was or something like that, you had to ask the driver, you know, who'd look at these yes. analogue dials on, yeah. his, on his dashboard and then he'd tell you and you'd write them down and that was your data logging, you know. <laughs> um, you don't require that of a driver anymore, so you can't compare the technicalities of the drivers, but you can compare other aspects, certainly psychology, human aspects, things like that. Mm. Um, all of those three, massively intelligent people, all of them huge capacity to think about what's going on while they're doing something, you know, the ability to multitask. As people, um, I mean, Michael, fabulous team player, you know, really hard worker, incredible attention to detail, knew everyone on the team, knew mm. about the people on the team. I think a really, really nice guy, you know, the sort of guy who you'd be friendly with no matter where you met him. Fernando and Ayrton in his early days, very, very focused, um, mm. you know, very egocentric, really. <clears throat> Uh, and really not looking at the bigger picture in the way Michael did. And probably the reason why Fernando says things the, the, the way he does sometimes. Interesting. <coughs> could, you, could you tell, you know, when Senna first came and told me, I mean, could you tell straight away that you had, there was something special about him? Well, you've got to remember I was a young guy as well in those days, so <laughs> I didn't have much to compare with, but he, he certainly did amaze me, yeah. Um, you know, there's some fabulous things about him and the, the way he he could uh, just work to the nth degree to get everything right and uh, uh, and drove the car with such perfection. Um, certainly, I'd, I'd never seen it before, mm. um, and I, but I think I probably only appreciated later on just how good he was. And and so everyone always talks about you know how Schumacher was is, well is still so good at just downloading all the information exactly how the car is fitting is was that something you noticed is does he have just a different kind of ability in that area? Um, 
Yeah, I think it's what I was saying earlier about this ability to sort of multitask, to, to drive a car flat out, but still to be thinking. Uh, all the good guys can do that. I, I remember with Fernando in Canada setting the fastest lap in, in the race, and he was talking all the way around the lap about <laughs> what was going on in the race or something. You know, that, that sets them apart. Michael was very good at mm. um, providing information and also... If he couldn't provide the information, he told you he couldn't. And that, that's a very important thing, too. I remember what really struck me. I, uh, I can't remember which year it was now. Maybe it was 05, I think it was. Um, I was invited to spend the Italian Grand Prix in the Renault pit, with the, complete with headset and everything. And I was what really fascinated me about it was how totally focused Fernando was. Because essentially, I mean, Montoya was leading the race. Fernando was running second. Um, and really, his only interest in the race was, where's Kimmy? Where's Kimmy? Because, you know, he was thinking championship all the time. And there wasn't an awful lot of conversation. Whereas, now, was it Alan Pomain who was Fisichella's race engineer at that time? Uh, yes, he would have been, yes. yeah. <laughs> and that really struck me that really the entire Italian Grand Prix, Alan was having to chivy... Giancarlo to get on with it. Yeah, well, Giancarlo, <laughs> Giancarlo, Kimmy is because Kimmy had had a puncture or something and lost time, and he was coming That's back right. through the field. Yeah. And 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 but the, what was amazing was that that when he chivied Giancarlo, bang, briefly it worked, and then yeah, you know, ten minutes later he was having to do it again. Sure, Whereas it just seems comes to, to mind, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> Whereas Fernando just seems to have this sort of relentless bang, bang, bang every lap, yeah. sort of yeah. on it. Yeah, no, that's absolutely is right. That, is and, that true? And, and Fernando, like Michael, like Ayrton even, um, I think just they could think their way through races. And, yeah, you know, I, I spent a lot of my time in, in racing doing strategy. And with strategy, you have, to, you have to build a map in your mind of all the possibilities in a race. And I, mm. I think of it, I, I try and describe it really as a sort of three-dimensional map in your mind mm. full of hills and valleys and mm. rivers that will be problems if you fall in them and yeah. things like that yeah. and as the race goes on you you imagine yourself going through this three-dimensional map and you're, you're looking for the the best route to the to the exit and um i think that you know the the good drivers probably think that way as well mm. Mm. but it seems as these days for us as viewers, it's a relatively new thing that we can listen into the, the radio conversations. And engineers are constantly chivying drivers along. And it can be everyone from Fernando downwards, really, these days. It, they all seem to, to get it in the ear from their engineer at some point. Is, is that... Quite so, right. And that, that's, exactly, <laughs> that's always been the way it has been? Yeah, it has. Um, you know, motorsport's quite, quite a, a strange sport in many ways. And... One of my sort of bugbears is that we don't have coaches, in mm. driver coaches in, in Formula One. And it's something I find very, very strange. I, I've been advocating coaching in, in, for drivers for many years because when I was a hands-on race engineer, I used to regard the coaching of my driver as being a, a very integral part of my job. And you know, certainly with Michael particularly, um, coaching was very important perhaps even more so with someone like say Jean Alessi who, who drove after Michael mm. where you know quite a, a complex 
mental character, shall we say. Um, <laughs> and coaching was terribly important. And I found it very strange that, you know, drivers will have these these managers who who carry their bags and will never criticise anything they do, no, no. which I find is absolutely yeah. dreadful. Yeah. And they're doing it because they're taking 15% of their money, so yeah. they're not going to say anything <laughs> yeah. wrong. Yeah. What they need are proper coaches yeah. who will tell them when they've been idiots, because yeah. they're all idiots from time to time, yeah. and they need to be told that. And I think the engineer is the only thing that, that relates in any way to a coach for the drivers. Yeah. Well, you think about it. I mean, you know, Federer has a coach. Absolutely, yeah. Nadal yeah, you, has. you don't have to be better at the sport. No. Um, you know, all the top golfers have coaches. Yeah, Everyone yeah, does yeah. because you need someone who's critical. Do you think yeah. it's an ego yeah. thing, partly, Pat, or not? Do you think it's, a, you know, I'm a great driver, why do I need a coach or not? I think it's... Um, I think it certainly started like that, and I think it's, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of... Um, tradition if you like uh, I think you know it's a bit of a macho sport mm. um, but you know, just to, as Michael introduced to Formula 1 the fact that you need to be super fit if you yeah. want to go racing someone at some time will say actually with a little bit of mental preparation I can do better mm. and then everyone will say oh why have we missed that mm. yeah. yeah they say drivers can't get faster but they can certainly get get better have you got examples that you've witnessed of drivers who have improved overall as drivers? Well, uh, that, that's quite a difficult question to answer because, you know, you, I, I, I'm very critical sometimes when I, I, I see someone say, oh, gosh, you know, so-and-so's got a much better driver this year. Reality is that, that that's very unlikely. Hmm. Yes, they'll improve slightly, but, you know, take the classic, take, take Jensen Button. Prior to being put in a brawn that you know really dominated the early part of the season he'd won one race and that was only because I gave it to him because I let bloody wheel fall off <laughs> 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 yeah. 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 but yeah he didn't suddenly learn how to drive uh, over the winter of 2008-2009 he didn't wake up one morning and he was a better driver he just happened to be in a better car now you know Jensen was a mature driver and we're seeing that this year, aren't we? We've seen it this year. We've seen how, how mature a driver he is and what a good thinker he is. That was there in 2008 when, you know, he wasn't winning. Yeah. So, no, I, I don't think, you know, you don't see these sudden changes. But I, I do think that the thinking driver is always going to be the better driver. Was it there in 2001? I think it wasn't. Um you know, in 2000, when, when Jensen came in to, to drive for Williams, he really impressed me. You know, he, he was one of the early drivers to graduate straight from Formula 3 to Formula 1. And while it's always difficult to tell how well someone is going to do in Formula 1 from previous experience, because you can very often be wrong, Jensen was very impressive. And I, I do think when he came to us at Benetton, he'd, he had... He'd taken his eye off the ball a little bit. Now, I'm not as critical of him as others in the team may have been because I still think he did a good job against difficult odds. But, um, yeah, he, he could have done a little bit better that year, I think. In terms of his mental application? In terms of his mental application, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Pat, I, 
trying to get through as many questions from readers as possible for obvious reasons. And um, as we've so little time left, can we talk about Red Bull for a moment? Because it must have been something that interested you a lot this past season. And um, the question really is, do you, you must have a view on what made that car so much better than the others. You know, was it the flexible front wing? Was it the suspension? Who, who said they had a flexible front? <laughs> sorry, no, sorry, sorry. No, that's sorry. I, I don't think sorry, they did. That was a, sorry, that was a slip of the tongue. Actually, Pat. Sorry, um, I meant. Was it the aerodynamics? Was it the suspension? Was it fuel efficiency from Renault? What? What? what do you have your? What was it? Well, I, I, I think it was. If, if you want to simplify it to one thing, I think it was aerodynamics. You know, the car was aerodynamically superb. Um, I think. I, just as an aside, I think it's fantastic that they've won the Constructors' Championship, you know, because prior to 2009, you can go back something like 15 years and you, you find three or four basic groups of people who've won the World Championship. Yeah. You know, there, there's there's McLaren, there's Ferrari, there's Benetton, Renault, who yeah. I group yeah. as one. Yeah. Um, go back a little bit further, you know, you find Williams. And then suddenly, 2009... We had a, a new team winning. 2010, same again. And I think yeah. that's fantastic yeah. for the sport that we've yeah. seen two new teams break into that, that monopoly. Uh, is it a monopoly if you have four? I don't suppose it is. But, uh, but uh, <laughs> Cartel, okay. Um, but, you know, they've done it just by having everything in place. Yeah. Uh, and aerodynamics is the, the ultimate performance attribute of a of formula one car and their, their, their aerodynamics has been better than others but they they've not been shy in any area have they two good drivers yeah. use their tires well team have generally worked well i think um you know they've been i know there's been a bit of friction inside but there have been some great strategy calls and mm-hmm. you know mark's uh, mark weber's call in uh, or the team's call to mark in Singapore for the early pit stop I thought it was great I cannot understand why they didn't do the same thing in, in Abu Dhabi that, that really <laughs> surprised me having having learnt the lesson and forgotten it in just yeah. a few weeks surprised yeah. me but but they're a good team yeah. a good solid team there's some good people there Were you talking about Abu Dhabi were you surprised when Ferrari bought in Fernando? <sighs> Not really they, they were between the devil and deep blue sea um, and I, I think you know this is the huge danger of, of of having just a one-car team racing a two-car team, you know, you, you mm. can you can really be caught out sometimes. And I think all of us have to put our hands up and say we we, we all thought that it was a race between Alonso and Weber, didn't we? Yeah. I mean, we all we all yeah. took yeah. our eye off the ball a bit yeah. there, didn't we? It's easy and it, the you know, as I was watching the race, I suddenly thought, oh, crikey, Vettel's going to win this. You know, it's yeah. like yeah. it yeah. was almost a surprise yeah. to me. Yeah. No, um, but you can see why it happened, can't you? Why why they made that decision? Yeah, I, I absolutely can see why they made that decision. Mm. And to be honest, it may well have worked as well. Um, you know, it was a combination of circumstances. Uh, I guess if you'd look back at last year's race, where there were six overtaking moves in the in the whole race, you might have said dodgy. Mm. But um, yeah. It's so easy to be a Monday morning quarterback. Absolutely. <laughs> I accuse everyone else of doing it, so I'm not going to do it myself. What, what, what do you think of the racing this year in terms of uh, no refueling and having to manage tyres? I mean, is that something you'd love to have got your hands on this year? Yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was the one who pushed so hard for no refueling because I, although I, I, I really enjoyed strategy, you know, it was, it was lovely, I 
absolutely thought it wasn't it, it was just getting a too complex and although it may sound uh, as if I'm contradicting myself it, it was also too predictable yeah. um, so you know you had the complexity of what are they going to do why are they going to do it um, which I, I thought was going beyond where it should be but then you also had the predictability of, well, you get to the last pit stop and everyone turns their engine down and you stop racing and things like that. And I think it's a little bit like the difference between football and cricket. Um, I hate cricket. But <laughs> I, had, I had a very good friend when I was at university who was very keen on cricket. And he explained to me the, the tactics of cricket. And I thought, gosh, actually, that is rather interesting. It, it, it's very different to what I thought. But... It still didn't make me a cricket fan. You know, football, mm. um, and I'm a huge Norwich fan. They did great yesterday. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, with football, you know, you, you don't have to think too much about it. it yes, of course, there's some tactics in the, in, in the way you um, play your team, just as there still is in Formula 1. There is some tactics involved, but they're not so complex now. You know, the strategies are not... You don't need to be a mathematician to follow it anymore. Yeah. So I think it's a lot better now. Yeah, yeah. And also, I, mean, I just think, for, you know, for the first time in a long time, I mean, tyres have become... And, and tyres and how you treat them... Um, yeah, yeah and, so, I mean, that, I, and we I, saw that in 2005, didn't we, when we had the single tyre. Yeah, and and yeah. people then raced to the end of the absolutely. race, which was really I good. that was a great year. Yeah. But, of course, Max brought it in for his own reasons and got rid of it for his yeah. own reasons. So, yeah. I, but I just thought... As, in terms of quality of racing, that was probably the best year. Was I mean, the, I remember the closing laps of Monaco. People yeah. were overtaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, th- and this is what we want. You know, if, yeah. if, if we're advertising a 55-lap race, let's race for 55 yeah, laps. Yeah, sure. Yeah. sure, yeah. Well, so I think Nigel had it right at the beginning, really, didn't he? We were talking about the circuits. I mean, if you took certain circuits out of the championship then the whole thing would be more exciting. I mean, because it's odd, isn't it? Every time we go to Interlagos, it's a fantastic race. Yeah, but the unfortunate thing is that the worst circuits appear to be the ones that pay the most. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And, and no, but I mean, that's only going to increase, if anything, isn't it, you know, over time? Sure, sure. Uh, Back that, to money, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, that really disturbs me. Yeah. You know, we, but it's, we, a fine, it's a fine balance, isn't it? Because the, the overtaking thing, you've got Monza this year, where, you know, Fernando and Jensen had one of the great races this year. You know, they didn't overtake each other. Um, I'm, I'm really surprised you say that. To me, that was a totally predictable outcome. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and unfortunately, I've seen it and I've been involved. Oh, I remember hmm. with uh, Jean Lacey and David Coulthard le- oh, leading the yeah, race yes, all the yes. way up to the pit stop. And I just knew yeah. we were going to lose it. I absolutely <laughs> knew we were going to lose it because I knew that Jean would not be good coming into the pits. And, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I think this year. I, I, so you completely I just predicted that was going to be absolutely. I'm Why afraid, was yeah. Jean not good? At, you would have thought, if anything, Jean would have been too good at coming into the pit. Wouldn't you? <laughs> 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 yeah, that's it. It's, I, I, I'd never appreciated that. Mm. And it was, he was always slow. His inlaps were always yeah. slow. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it, it you was, understand why I would think. Well, it's a multitasking That's again, you see. <laughs> yes. It must be, must be incredibly frustrating for a man like you, you know, with all the brain power, all the time, all the energy that goes into building this fantastic car, and then somebody can't do a proper inlap. Well, it's like, you know, one of, one of Flav's greatest stories is, you know, when, when, when Jean ran out of fuel. 
I mean, <laughs> I've got that on tape somewhere, and I mean, it, it makes me laugh every time I hear it. Extraordinary, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Why do you? Why do you think we are calling you in for pee? What? What do you think? No, for fuel, Jean. For fuel. <laughs> <laughs> it is, of course. Well, it is, of course, one of the reasons why we're all so addicted to the thing, isn't it? Because cause it's all just so fascinating—the technology, the people, the emotions—that it's all there. It's all there's like like watching Norwich City, isn't it? <laughs> it's almost that good, yes. <laughs> Pat, can can I just ask you, looking back at at 2010, which which new which technical innovations appealed to you particularly in 2010? Well, the, the F duct. I mean, it's superb, absolutely superb. Again, I'm a little bit surprised they they got away with it. You know, again, mm. it comes down to semantics and and how you interpret the rules. Uh, to say that the driver is not a movable aerodynamic device, I find strange. But equally, <laughs> I can I can understand where where Charlie Whiting was with it because you know if he said, well, no, the the driver isn't a movable aerodynamic device, then he was going to get a load of arguments. Mm-hmm. What he should have done is he should have just said, look, I don't want this to happen. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's good when rules are a little bit grey rather than black mm-hmm. and white. Mm-hmm. But having said that, what a fabulous bit of engineering it was. You know, mm-hmm. really, really clever. Um, you know, some great principles, great engineering principles involved. And what's more important, I think, is that just like when we did the Tune Mass Damper some years yeah. ago, it didn't matter that it got banned. What mattered was that we probably woke people up to the fact that tune mass dampers are quite a good way of doing something, quite a simple way of doing something. And the F-duct, now banned for, for 2011, but does that really matter? If, if we've just made one road car aerodynamicist think, well, actually, there are different ways of moving mm. the air around the car, then that's a good contribution. Yeah, because so then it becomes multitasking, on this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now I'm not. I'm not suggesting that drivers should put their hands <laughs> over the over the vent on their dashboard or anything like that. But um, but you know, road car designers don't yeah. have the the constraints that Formula One designers have, and there are lots of things you can do with active aerodynamics that we're going to see in road cars that I think are going to be very interesting. We are running out of time, I'm afraid. Sadly, I could I could listen to Pat Simmons for a long time, but um, we are running out of time because Pat has to get away. He is going home on public transport, which if you live in England, you'll know what the ramifications of that are. Just before we go, it's important to uh, mention that this is not the last podcast of the year. We'll be back just before the Christmas holiday to, and it says here, to give you something to listen to over the festive period. Okay. Good. Well, I hope you enjoy that one. It's going to be our review of the year. With That's with Nigel Roebuck and uh, with Damien Smith and Ed Foster. We'll be looking back at the Formula One season, that is, of 2010. And just to remind you about getting a subscription to Motorsport magazine, uh, it is important. It does help us a lot. 23% off, don't forget, a free DVD. And uh, it really is worth going for that. I do urge you to do that because uh, Motorsport wants to be around for another 100 years or however long it's been around. Well, nearly 100 years anyway. So um, why, not, why not give your friends and loved ones a subscription to Motorsport magazine for Christmas? Good idea? Good idea. Okay, thank you very much, Pat, for your time and for okay. coming in to see us. And uh, we'll be back in about three weeks. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. 
Motorsport Magazine for the very best in motor racing. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 